Hey everybody, hello and welcome to another episode of the How to Adventure podcast. This is your host, Ari in the Air, and today we're going to revisit some China topics. I know I've done a number of podcasts on my trip to China, but I think it's worth revisiting. Today we're going to go a little bit further into the um, political observations that I made, and we're going to get into it by reading an article that I wrote that was just published in the United States Hang Glide and Paraglide Association magazine. It just came out recently, and the photos are by the talented photographic partner in crime that I have, Chris Hoyt, and it is... I think it's pretty good, actually. I wrote it and hadn't revisited it for a while, and then when it came out in the magazine, I read it, and I, I like it. It's pretty good. I would change a couple things in hindsight, but I think it's pretty good. So I'm going to read it, and then we're going to talk about some of the things I didn't talk about in the article. Ready? Here we go. good the layout's nice and um, I like it so here we go it's titled free flying in China by Ari Delashman in America 
The concept of China seems to be shrouded in mystery, if not downright contempt. We talk about the Chinese pollution, their massive population, and their communist government. We wonder if they're the next world military superpower, and if they're trying to take over our country by buying up all our debt. But let me assure you, we're asking the wrong questions. I went to China to get to the I went to China to get the answers to the only questions that really matter. Does the air rise there? If so, how high? If it rises high, how far can we go? My trip to China was spurred by an invitation to an international slackline competition at Wanfo Lake in the Anhui province. I was one of four North Americans invited, but the only one to bring a paraglider. The glider sat idle in my hotel room for nearly 10 days as we competed against teams from all over the world on national TV. We set the world record for the longest waterline, 2,231 feet, and we did countless demonstrations for the Chinese spectators. It was an incredible opportunity to slackline with the best in the world, not to mention doing it in China. But after a few days, the glider was moaning in its bag, calling me, begging me, "Fly me." The glider began to haunt my dreams, and I could feel its hatred for slacklines growing. It was time to go. The glider needs to have its way, and we've got important questions to answer. My partner in photographic crime, Chris Hoyt, and I set out on a journey to what is arguably China's best flying site, Linzhou. To get there, we'd need to take a generic Uber, a taxi, a bullet train, stay in a pod hostel, another taxi, another bullet train, and a final two-hour shuttle. It was a lot of schlepping our huge bags, eating terrible travel food, and barely making our departures, but we did it. Upon arrival to the hotel that's adjacent to the flying club, our minds were blown. A range of mountains, a kilometer tall, appeared to erupt out of the earth and run as far as we could see in both directions. Limestone cliffs jut upwards out of a dense and persistent forest that snakes its way up the rocks and cracks, clinging to the shelves. The air was clear and clean. The sky was perfectly blue. There was substantial wind. And only one glider in the sky that looked pretty much parked, flying the crosswind, but staying up. We dropped our bags, ate lunch, then walked to the club to get the scoop on flying. We arrived to a bustling clubhouse. <clears throat> Lots of people milling around, a huge landing zone, and a modern building full of paramotors, trikes, and a shop full of flying gear. The club secretary, Mean. Greeted us in perfectly functional English. Here to sign up for the competition? She asked. We were not here to compete. I had just my phone app that tells me, as a vario, sorry, we were not here to compete. I had just my phone app, which I use as a vario, by the way, and my acro harness. But when she informed us that the site would close to any non-competitors in just two days' time. We started to think hard and fast. Maybe you fly tomorrow and decide if you want to compete. Mean suggested. Yes, I think that's exactly what we should do. The next day we headed up to launch, which is no small journey. Fifty minutes of hairpin switchbacks, tunnels through the mountain, and single-lane roads perched on what seemed to be the edge of the world. At certain spots on this road, your vehicle would tumble down thousands of feet if you went through the guardrail. 
The launch is 2,850 feet above the landing zone, and there are a few turns on the road at this height that are nearly as sheer. We arrived at a beautiful site, a massive launch fit for over 100 pilots. The surface of launch was that of a running track, and its shape was convex, allowing launches into wind directions varying by over 100 degrees. This was the most established, biggest, most legitimate flying site I'd ever seen, but the important questions were still unanswered. Would we go up? It was about 10.30 a.m. and the conditions seemed good, with the wind coming up the face and clear blue skies. A Russian pilot, Sergei, launched on an Enzo 2 with a huge cravat. Everyone on launch was mortified and mouthing their concerns. Sergei didn't seem to mind and calmly cleared the malfunction before catching the house thermal. What followed was something I'd only dreamt about and it seemed to answer our first important question. Sergei hooked into that first thermal and started rocketing up. Within just a few minutes, he had climbed hundreds of feet over launch. In five minutes, he had completely specked out and was deep over the back. I guessed that he was 3,000 over launch, but I later learned that he had gotten over 6,000 feet above launch and climbed in more than 8 meters a second lift. I also later learned that during this flight, he had reached over 10,000 feet absolute altitude, where he encountered huge shear and had a series of cascading collapses that took over 3,000 feet of falling to control. Whoa. I was hoping to have his luck climbing, but please, for God's sake, keep me away from that shear. More pilots launched, confirming a positive answer to the question of going up. We launched to keep asking. I was immediately in a big, easy climb that seemed to be endless. Up and up, around and around. The view quickly changed into one of the best of my life. Looking over the back, I could see far into the range. These mountains were like a high plateau that had been sliced and diced by eons of water. Gorges so deep, I couldn't see the bottoms. Beautiful forests clung to everything subvertical, and sheer, vibrant limestone cliffs were everywhere. I was 4,000 feet over launch, so I stepped on my speed bar, proceeding to my next series of questions. On glide, I continued to appreciate the scenery. I went really far on my first glide and was still above the tops of the cliffs. I saw someone on a Sigma coring what seemed to be a steep climb. I headed their way, but encountered some stiff sink. I sped up and worked around the corner to see what, what he was getting lift from. Once I could see the terrain, the steep climb I saw the Sigma in made sense. A massive bowl littered with huge cliffs was baking in the hot midday sun. I was relatively low, so I cautiously approached the cliffs. I was headed downwind towards the rocks, going up steadily. By the time I reached them, the smooth lift had brought me over the top of the ridge, and I pushed back to find the core. When I found it, it nearly ripped my glider in half. I was going up fast and rowdy. The lift on the left side of the wing got so strong, the right side collapsed, even with a huge brake input. I was essentially staring at the glider, fighting to keep it open, fighting to stay in what was the strongest climb I'd ever found. It got better and better the higher I took it, and I wound up maxing my climb at 7 meters a second and topped out at 9,100 feet, more than 6,000 feet over launch. My questions were getting answered. Another glide, another climb. This was quickly turning into the greatest flight of my life. Ripping lift over unbelievable terrain, in a country as foreign as they get, with your best friend, the pinnacle 
of paragliding. About 30 kilometers down the range, the terrain started to change. The continuous ridge began to break up into individual mountains and buttes. There was a large reservoir. The region is known for massive irrigation infrastructure, and I used it as my turn point to head back towards the landing zone. I was feeling quite satisfied with the answers that I had found on my first flight. I was alone at this point. Chris had sunk out, and we got separated. He made a low save and headed all the way back to the landing zone. He came on the radio and told me how great it felt to pee on the ground. Since I'd been in the air over two and a half hours, I didn't appreciate the reminder. By now, the sun was on the opposite side of the terrain from where it started, and flying back was a new sight entirely. The lift was coming out of the gorge and converging with the air that was rising over the flats. I pushed back into a bowl that had marvelous stone pillars, freestanding in front of the big cliffs. I was looking for lift when I found a bird. Not a big soaring eagle or virtual... Uh, <laughs> vulture. <laughs> Not a big soaring eagle or vulture, but a little bird, fluttering wings and a small red body. I started to follow it, wondering if this kind of bird knows what the big birds know. Sure enough, we started to climb together. He would flap his wings quickly to get into and stay in the core of the lift. We were perfectly mirroring each other's flight path in the thermal. He flapped much less in the consolidated part of the climb, and I relaxed as well. We went up about 2,000 feet together, and he never seemed to mind me much. I went on glide and tipped my hat to the great avian guide. When I arrived back over launch, I was thousands of feet above. I pushed out over the flats, the club landing zone just a tiny rectangle below me. I did some acro to come down and maxed out my descent rate at nearly negative 17 meters a second with a fast spiral, a cherry on top of what was clearly a paragliding Sunday. Once on the ground, we immediately signed up for the competition. We could not miss a day of flying here. America then, officially, became the 17th nation represented in the competition. The next day was another one for the books. I got higher above the ground than I'd ever been, did the biggest glide of my life, and ended up with my longest triangle to date. Once the competition started, the weather changed, of course. Wind over the back. Crosswind. Smog. The tasks were less than amazing, but they were challenging in the conditions. We had some crazy gaggle sessions. Everyone smashed into weak thermals right on the cliffs. Nerve-wracking, yet incredibly exciting. By the end of the trip, I had learned so much about the culture, the people, the way of life in China. I contemplated the common American conceptions of this place and came to my own realization. The Chinese pollution is caused in no small part by them producing the majority of the first world's goods. China is undoubtedly a world, a world superpower, and communism definitely, definitely sucks. These are things that you too will contemplate if you go, and I don't need to try to fill in all the answers for you here. All I will say is that you all I will say is that if you go in search of rising air, you will find it in China. I think it's pretty good. It's pretty paraglide heavy. It's pretty paraglide heavy. There's definitely some things in there that are um, kind of techy, but it's in a paraglide magazine, so give me a break. So, 
Oh, yeah, okay. What do I want to talk about that I didn't talk about in that article? That's very paragliding specific. And the paragliding in China was absolutely unbelievable. The first two days we were there, I had consecutively the best flight of my life and then the best flight of my life. I went further than I had ever gone. It was just... It was like a powder day in the sky. Just perfect conditions, and I realized I was capable of much more than I thought, which is pretty dreamy when it comes to sports. So, the things that I didn't talk about in the paragliding specific thing. Um, let's start with the pollution. Chinese pollution. I am recording this podcast on what I assume to be an audio recorder made in China. I look down at the clothing I wear and have to assume that some of it is made in China. I am recording this onto an SD card that was made in China. My computer was assembled and made in China. Most of the things around me were made in China. To blame China for Chinese pollution is the most arrogant, ungrateful thing that a Westerner could do. I mean, I guess we'll get to more arrogant things in a second, but it is the epitome of arrogance. The epitome of a lack of understanding of the global markets and how we get the things that we get. China has, as a capitalist move, stepped into the position that says that they will produce the goods for cheaper than other places. And by doing so, they have created an economy of scale that the world has not seen. In doing so, they have created jobs and wealth for hundreds of millions of people. That's a big number, and it's a real thing. Communism kind of cuts into that, and we'll talk about that in a second, but I noticed that the lifestyle of your average Chinese person was fairly light as far as carbon effects go. Most of them use public transportation, a lot of which is driven by electric. They have these little electric mopeds, um, a lot ride bicycles. They don't travel huge distances or commute huge distances. These are generalizations, of course. And there are ch tall Chinese people, let me assure you, people outside of the norms and generalizations. Duh. But in general, China has produced a economic wealth for their country, but it has come at a cost. Because as we know, Chinese air pollution is abhorrent. It is out of control. I saw it for myself. The a couple of days of the competition, the you couldn't even see the valley floor 
because of the amount of smog that rolled in. Which also squashes the thermals and makes the flying suck, so there's the implications of that go further than just health and wealth. But the reality is that their pollution is our pollution. If we were to produce the goods ourselves here, then China would not have the wealth from being the industrialized superpower that it is. They would have the health that comes from not producing the rest of the world's goods in their country. And we would have some of that pollution here at home. So, I, I have not quoted a single statistic. This is not an academic argument, but rather one from my reason and logic. The evidence that I use as the backing for this argument is all around us. Go ahead and turn over all the things in your house that are made in China and assume that the environmental effects of producing that were in a land far, far from where the product now resides. So, to summarize and conclude that point, just be careful of who you blame for the pollution that China is burdened with. 500 million people in China don't have access to clean and safe drinking water because their groundwater has been contaminated. And furthermore, the regulations that the American government puts on American companies as far as the environment don't necessarily help the environment. They just help outsource the work to somewhere where the regulations are not so strict. So, might want to think about the implications of the regulations that you vote for for the American government to enact through force on American businesses. Might be just a little bit better to keep the tax burden off of our American companies so that we can have control of how we produce things, what, what um, standards we use, and what we do with the pollution for the products that we consume. It's hard to control those things when they're in China. Let's just say that. Cancer has become the number one cause of death in China, and many people blame the pollution for that. So we have traded cheap products. They have willingly received it, but that has come at a cost for both us and them. The next point that I would like to make is that communism totally, totally sucks. And in America, we have had over the last few years a resurgence of Marxist ideologies, collectivist social organization ideals, and a general ignorance of the history that comes with these ideologies. 
So I would say that history has spoken loud and clear as far as the death toll under Marxist governments. If the term Marxist confuses you, then please, please do some research into the teachings of Karl Marx. It pretty much entails collectivism in general, communism and socialism, which have both been implemented in multiple cultures, in multiple geographies, in multiple time periods. We can take the Soviet Union, for example, where tens of millions of people died under the hands of governments. We can take China's Mao and see how much of a monster he was. We can look at the National Socialism implemented by Hitler in Germany. We can look at the killing fields of Cambodia and Vietnam. We can watch before our own eyes as socialist Venezuela collapses and crumbles. A common reaction that I get when I propose that the Bernie Sanders-type democratic socialists in America are on the path of totalitarianism, just like the countries before, aforementioned countries, the common response is that Venezuela was not true socialism and that true socialism has never been tried before. And in the, I would paraphrase Dr. Jordan Peterson by saying that the arrogance of this statement insists that if socialist Venezuela was not real socialism, then it is the argument of that person that if they were the ones in power, if they were the ones who had the job of implementing these Marxist doctrines, that they would achieve the socialist utopia that the Bernie Sanders types dream of. And there is nothing more arrogant than that. We all have our own ways of viewing the world. But it is hard to argue when hundreds of millions have died at the hands of governments that were implemented with doctrines that you can still read today. And when Bernie Sanders makes a compelling argument for socialism, look not to your heart to see if you are virtue signaling. Look to history because history will repeat itself if we forget.
scary stuff. Scary, scary stuff. But let us also note, China in the last 20 years, even under a huge communist government, has implemented small business free markets. They have taken the regulation off of the smallest businesses. And in doing so, they have raised tens of millions of people out of abject poverty. What this looked like to me as a Westerner walking through China was that families, children's, mothers, and fathers could push carts down the street and sell squid. This is essentially China as a government coming together to say that, hey, we're going to let kids sell lemonade on the side of the street without a business permit, without a food handler's license, without a driver's license. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing because you can... It's convenient and it's voluntary because you know what? I want some barbecued squid at two o'clock in the morning in the Bund in Shanghai and I get it. And I get it for cheap because these people don't have to pay all these other crazy things. So what it creates is a meritocracy where if you're smart enough and willing enough to work and put things on the back of your bike and ride them around town until you sell all of them, then you can do that. And there are lots of people in China. You go ride your bike around Shanghai for just one day and you're going to see people who have nothing and they literally go through and they, they get trash. They get cardboard. Just, just one instance here. There are people who will go and they will get cardboard out of the trash and they will find something that holds water and a trashed rag and they will wash cars on the street. Okay, and this is not unique to China. They will take the cardboard and they'll put it on the windshields and they'll help people park and they will put cardboard on the windshield so the car doesn't heat up in the sun and they'll wash the car. They started with nothing and they created something. In America, you can't operate without a business license. Imagine what that does if you start with nothing. It's weird. The, the world is so complex. It is a mistake for a person to think that if they, if people would just implement these certain things, that the suffering in the world would disappear. No, no, no. The world is way too complicated for that. We have limited processing capacity in our own minds, and therefore we must take the complexities of the world and we must simplify it down to some 8-bit rendering so that we can comprehend it and so that we can live within it. I think that American democratic socialism is a ideology that tries to convince people that their small 8-bit visualizations of the complex world are accurate enough that they can start using government force to meddle in the 
transactions and decisions of people for benevolent effect. I think that is foolish and that is arrogant. And ultimately, it uses force as its mechanism, which is immoral. So, those are just kind of some of my thoughts here. And I would love to hear your thoughts. So, send them to me. Put them in the comments here if you're on SoundCloud. If it's on iTunes, you can put them there. Stitcher, I'm sure there's ways to comment on these podcasts, no? I haven't heard from anyone. This is like my 15th podcast or something. I haven't heard fucking, not a single comment. Oh, I I did get a comment. It was from my mom. It was from my mom and I asked her to make a comment. (laughs) Oh, fuck. (laughs) I'm going to keep doing the podcast either way. So, if you like it, thanks. You don't have to do anything, I suppose. You don't have to like or comment or subscribe or share it with your friends or give me money or subscribe to my Patreon, which I don't have. I just, I guess I'm using this podcast as a way for me to sharpen my skills and sharpen my ideas and and try to vet my ideas to the truth as opposed to colliding them with other ideas. So... I recommend you try to do the same thing in some aspect of your life. Until next time. Anyway, this week, I think I'm interviewing Sage Catabriga Alosa. We're about to go on a mountain bike ride together here in just an hour. Um, and I've been looking at his involvement with Protect Our Winters. You know, that 501c3 nonprofit started by Jeremy Jones, which basically lobbies the government to try to inflict regulation on American businesses to help the environment. Which, remember when I mentioned that using government force to get your way is immoral? Yeah, I know we all like snow. We all like our environment, but just because the alarmists say that we're ruining the earth doesn't mean that you get to use guns to tell us that we've got to save it. I'm kind of teetering on the edge of whether or not I grill Sage, who's a really nice guy, about the mechanisms that the nonprofit that he endorses uses. So if you want to write a comment or something, tell me whether you think I should grill Sage about his involvement with Protect Our Winters or not. Um, Either way, I think I'll do an analysis of Protect Our Winters and their calls to action after I do interview Sage, and maybe that'll come up. But until then, stay tuned. Listen to Jordan B. Peterson's lectures, please. If you want to have intellectual, political thought, you need to be listening to people who are at a high level. Don't you? So many of these people around us, these millennials, are letting their political ideologies be shaped by memes. And it's really, really dangerous because the world is extremely complex. And it's important to understand history and where we've been so that you can propose where we go. Have fun. Get outside, get some, love you, peace.